Hello, Gyrish Nation. It's the annual Charlie Weiss Cheeseburger Week. Notre Dame is number 13 in the AP poll, sitting at 5-1, ticking up one spot versus last week. This week's podcast will be a little different as Brett's taking some much-deserved R&R and playing golf at Torrey Pines. Betting lines are set in the over-under at 15 balls in the ocean. I don't need the advanced stats to tell me to take the over here. As such, we've recorded a couple solo segments this week, and we've pieced it together for a great show. Like Brett, I hope our listeners enjoyed a relaxing, stress-free weekend watching other teams rumble in the pit of chaos that is this year's college football season. As we frequently say in this podcast, winning is hard, and this week provided yet another example of that statement's truth. Just among last week's top 25, number 2 Iowa, number 11 Kentucky, number 17 Arkansas, number 19 BYU, number 20 Florida, and number 25 Texas dropped games with Iowa's loss to unranked Purdue looming largest. We're a Notre Dame football podcast, not a general college football podcast, but it's important to look at the broader landscape at times to keep perspective of where we are as a program. And if winning is hard, winning consistently year after year is significantly more challenging. Look no further than LSU, who just announced that Coach O will not be returning to LSU next year. A stunning fall from grace after winning the title in January 2020 with one of the greatest teams in college football history. As I'm observing the broader college football landscape this weekend, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a takeaway that applies to our own fan base. One that unfortunately came from my native Tennessee. For those of our listeners who didn't stay up late, you missed one of the craziest games I've seen in a while with Ole Miss at Tennessee. Lane Kiffin returning to his former home after spurning them for the USC job. A lot of bad blood on both sides. Tensions were high. And of course, Lane has been known as an instigator from time to time. The game itself was close, but what really sent this game into the bizarre territory was the behavior of the Tennessee fans. Late in the game, fans started throwing objects on the field at Lane and at Ole Miss. Look, I'm talking bottles, food, golf balls. Lane was actually hit by a golf ball, even full-size mustard bottles. Officials had to delay the game for a lengthy period of time to get control of the situation, and there was even some doubt whether they would be able to resume. On top of that, there were several instances of the fans loudly cheering Ole Miss player injuries. Look, we all love college football and can be very passionate about it at times, but Behavior like that is inexcusable, and frankly, it's embarrassing. As much as us Notre Dame fans can get into it with each other over Brian Kelly, what the expectations should be, etc., I feel thankful that I've never observed behavior quite like that from our fan base. As a Cleveland Browns fan, I can't exactly say the same. Moving back to Notre Dame, in fact, the feedback I've heard about our fans' behavior and welcomeness from opposing fan bases has consistently been overwhelmingly positive. Let's keep it up, and to paraphrase the great Ron Burgundy, stay classy, Irish nation. Moving to this upcoming week, both Brett and I have our bags packed for the pilgrimage back to South Bend, ending a nearly two-year hiatus for getting to watch the Irish live at home in the most beautiful place on earth, Notre Dame Stadium. The boys are finally back in town. I can't tell you how long I've been waiting to say that. Super pumped to experience that Notre Dame mystique again. Turning to this week's show, we've dug deep for some awesome content to fill the bye week. We're going to take this bye week as the halftime of the season, break down all the key stats at the midway point, and grade out the team. Then we're going to do our usual weekly preview for the USC game. And we'll wrap up by using this bye week as a chance to step back and look at Notre Dame's recruiting strategy and trends, how the 22 class is shaping up, and who are the big prospects for the 23 class that will be the make or break for future ND rosters. Quick note on the segments. Parts of these, not all, we've recorded prior to the weekend, so there will be a few numbers we cite here and there that have moved slightly. And in some cases, some of the numbers I cite may not totally tie out to numbers that Brett says. These movements will not be material, though. 
Given the bye week, we're going to skip listener questions, but we do have the return of the Four Horsemen segment, debating the best South Bend bars for home game weekends. Always a hot debate among Irish fans, but certainly wherever the beer is cold and the friends are plenty, well, my soul will be content. All right, let's dive in. You got to think about our process, not the outcome. And the outcome always takes care of itself. If you don't think about the scoreboard and you just think about how we do our stuff, we'll be fine. The bye week has conveniently fallen at the halfway point in the season, so we thought this would be a good time to take stock of where we are, how the team's grading out, what are predictions for the second half, and really what advanced uh, stats and metrics stood out to us here at Geirish Talk. Before we get into those advanced stats, one area that we really wanted to focus on that's a bit outside the numbers is just how gritty this team is. Grit is a term that Brian Kelly has, of course, used a lot since the 2017 reboot and what's been dubbed Kelly 2.0. And and there's a lot of stats and anecdotes and just frankly the narrative of the season that um, you know really highlights the grit of this team. There's been three fourth quarter comebacks in the first six games, an overtime victory, one loss where we were down 17 nothing but clawed back to get within four points in the second half. So this team has a lot of resolve. They're finding ways to win games. It hasn't always been pretty. Dealing with a lot of roster turnover, inexperience, injuries. All the sort of things that can lead to excuses in team sports and, and really let things get off the rail. But despite that, here we are. We're five and one going into the bye week. Arguably the toughest part of the schedule's behind us. You know, before the season I think everyone thought ten, eleven wins, that that's the realistic goal for this team, and we are on schedule for that. We are on path that there's clear sight to ten wins. It's not a slam dunk, it's not a given right now. Um, but it's a crazy year in college football, 11-1, and one, maybe even a backdoor path to the college football hasn't been ruled out yet. But this team's grit has really got them to the midway point of this season, um, staring at a 5-1 and one record that, frankly, could have just as easily been 3-3. Three and three. Um, And so um, that, that grit's the first thing we wanted to highlight. Starting with some metrics on the offense, um, Notre Dame has a predicted points added of .13 uh, points per play. Now, that's not just points for, um, that's also, you know, when you turn it over, that would be a negative expected points added. If you take a sack, that's negative expected points added. So 0.13 points per play, that means, uh, you know, you've really got to run about 70 plays to um, to get to a net touchdown um, for, for, for the offense. That's 105th in the country. Uh, last year, we were 0.25 points per play, so almost double. That was 35th in the country. So from a productivity standpoint, halfway through the season, a big step back from what we've seen. We've we've talked about this every week. This isn't a surprise, and, and that expected points per play really highlights that. The other metric that really highlights it is success rate. We, we talk about success rate all the time. That means getting 50% of yardage on first down, 70% of the yards to go on second down, and converting a first down, get, getting 100% of the yards to go on, on third or fourth down. You want that number to be in the mid to high 40s. Last year, we were 46%. That was number 36 in the country, so very much above average. This year, that's dropped to 39%, which is 100th in the country. And on top of that, we're giving up a lot of havoc. On about 20% of plays, Notre Dame opponents are generating havoc plays, which are tackles for losses, sacks, turnovers, deflected passes, plays that really disrupt an offense. Um, and, you know, no surprise, we've, we've talked about this a lot, sacks have been a big issue. Um, interestingly, the advanced metrics does not think that's on the offensive line. Per pro football focus, the offensive line is graded out at 70 in pass protection. 
Um, for context, that's number 31 in the country, so above average. Yet we're one of the worst teams in the country, allowing four sacks per game. That's number 125th in the country out of 130 teams. So very near the bottom in terms of sacks allowed. And that's because of Jack Cohn taking sacks on 36% of plays when he's under pressure. The average quarterback takes sacks on about 18% of plays where they're under pressure. So 36%, that's fourth worst in the country. He's effectively taking twice as many sacks as you would expect from an average quarterback. And at risk of being a broken track record, we, we keep talking about these themes a lot. The offensive line has held up pretty good in pass protection. Virginia Tech... Uh, game really showed that when when Jack Cohn was in we took two sacks in the first quarter one clearly appeared to be on Cohn um, not being able to kind of manage and step up in the pocket um, and then when Cohn wasn't in there um, no sacks allowed no tackles for losses allowed so the offensive line at least in pass protection um, has held up pretty well in the first six games despite what narrative is out there um, about the offensive line needing to do a better job protecting the quarterbacks this is not really supported in the data um Flipping to run blocking, though, that's where the offensive line has struggled. They've got a grade of 63 in pro football focus. That ranks number 71 in the country, um, slightly below average for all of FBS. It's very much below average for Power 5 schools. Um, A metric to help support that, we talk about line yards a lot. That's how many yards the offensive line generates in push per run play. Um, Effectively, think about that as how far down the field does the offensive line move the defense before the running back gets contacted um, by by the first defender, by the first potential tackler? That's two and a half line yards per rush play right now for Notre Dame. We averaged right around three uh, line yards per play in the last few seasons. That was consistently in the top 25. This drop-off to 2.5, that's statistically a huge drop-off. That's about a 30% drop-off. That's near the bottom now of, of the country. The reason for optimism, look, we know left tackle's been rotating. We've gone from Tosh Baker and Blake Fisher and Carmody, and now Joe Alt appears to have solidified that role. Uh, same thing at left guard. Andrew Kristoffich appears to really have overtaken Zeke Carell at left guard. It brings a little bit more size, and they played much, much better as a unit against Virginia Tech. The team had 175 yards rushing, and most importantly, that line yards per rush was 33 So the offensive line really moved the line of scrimmage in that game. It's just one game, limited sample size, one data point. But hopefully, uh, especially with the likes of Cincinnati and Wisconsin, really tough defenses behind us, you're seeing this offensive line turn a corner and and is primed for a big second half. At the other positions, look, Notre Dame's not been some offensive juggernaut. Uh, I think a lot of people want to say, look, Kyron and Chris Tyree and Mike Mayer and Kevin Austin, you know, these big skilled position players, if the offensive line could just hold up. Well, that's not really what we're seeing in the numbers. Um, According to Pro Football Focus, our receivers grade out as the 64th best receiving core in the country. Our running backs grade out as the 106th running back um, group in the country. Now that is focused specifically on rushing. A lot of the damage from Tyree and Kyron has been in the past game, Um, but just running the ball, the, the running backs, even when they get lanes, um, you know, haven't really been grading out very well. And then quarterback play. Our, our quarterback room has been graded out as 79th in the country, obviously with the revolving carousel of Cone, Pine, Buckner. So none of our skill positions at either cornerback, uh, quarterback, running back, wide receiver have really stepped up in a big way, um, even after adjusting for offensive line struggles. 
Um, then, you know, stepping back and looking at the offense as a whole, Notre Dame ranks 92nd in yards per game with 367 yards per game. We're, we're better in, in points per game at 31 points per game. That's number 53 in the country. Um, despite those being lower, Notre Dame's efficiency ratings are much better. We're, we're ranked as the 32nd most efficient offense by SP+, the 37th most efficient offense by FEI. Um, and just a reminder, those are predictive analytics systems. So they're meant to effectively account for things like strength of schedule, turnover luck, field position. They're meant to predict how you would expect a team to play next week um, and in future games. It's not a, a ranking of our resume or a ranking of our wins and losses. It's, it's really meant to be predictive. How efficient are you play in and play out? And FEI and SP Plus like this offense. They, they think we're a top 40 offense. Um, a big reason for that, why you're not seeing those predictive analytics jive with some of the numbers is we've played Cincinnati. That's the number 10 defense in the country. We've played Wisconsin. That's the number three defense in the country. So in, in two of those first six contact, uh, contests, we've played the, you know, best of the best, uh, defenses that have really been tough tests for our offense going forward. This should give you a lot of optimism, um, for the last six games of the year, USC through Stanford. Um, they average, um, about number 70 in the country. The best we're going to play is USC that they're rated out as the number 35th most efficient defense in the country. But other than that, the defenses we're playing are pretty susceptible. Um, and they're, they're not rating out well in advanced metrics. And so we're pretty optimistic for the offense that despite maybe the early season struggles here, you're really going to see them turn a corner. Uh, against some weaker opposition coming up, and that's going to lead to to some breakout uh, production on, on the offensive side of the ball. Turning to the defense, uh, reminder for our listeners that coming into the season, new defensive coordinator in Marcus Freeman and replacing five starters from last year's team. So our preseason prediction was for this to be another top 25 defensive unit. That's about where we were last year. We were about a top 20 defensive unit. But it'd be difficult with that much turnover at both coaching and the roster to see that group elevate, right? We weren't expecting a top 10 defense, um, but we, we did think there's enough talent there, enough returning production, and enough guys in, in the overall depth rotation that would allow this team to have a top 25 defense again. And that's exactly where we've been. SP Plus has this rated as the 19th best defense um, expected going forward. FEI has us at number 16. Um, and again, those are predictive analytics, but they're a way to kind of measure just truly how efficient you are accounting for a bunch of other variables. And it has Notre Dame as a top 20 defense. Looking at some of the advanced stats, predicted points allowed per play. So again, we said that Notre Dame's offense had 0.13 predicted points um, uh, gained per play. Our defense is allowing 0.07. Um, so as much as the offense has maybe struggled, the defense has been twice as good on the defensive side of the ball. That's 17th best in the country at 0.07. Um, 0.2 is average. So we're giving up about a third um, of the expected points per play than the average defense in the country. Uh, success rate, the other metric we love talking about. Uh, we've given up a 36% success rate. Again, offenses want to be in the mid 40s on that number. So giving up a 36% success rate, that's number 15 in the country for Notre Dame. Um, another one, explosiveness. This was a big headline early on. We gave up a lot of explosiveness against Florida State and Toledo. That has really uh, 
trimmed down significantly in the last four games. Our explosiveness allowed is 1.15 through the first six games of the season. It's hard to exactly explain what that number means, but effectively um, the analytics put that on an index from 0.7 to 1.7. So 0.7, um, really good for an offense, uh, really good for a defense, really bad for an offense. 1.7, really bad for a defense, really good for an offense. So 1.15, that's you know closer to the bottom of that indexing range. That's above average for defense. It's number 31 in the country. So pretty good overall. Um, the other stat is Havoc rate. Uh, that's at 18%. We actually would have expected that to have been a big plus for this defense, but 18% Havoc rate, that's actually 52nd in the country. So slightly above average, but you know certainly not in that top 20, top 25. So the real takeaway of how is our defense being successful, it's not generating huge plays. It's actually the opposite of that. It's not allowing big plays by the offense, and then it's keeping teams... Um, off schedule. It's it's not giving up chunk yards on first down and second down. It's getting them into long third down situations. And then we're doing a great job getting off the field on third down. Uh, in fact, our third down conversion percentage allowed for our defense is 31%. Um, so opponents are, are converting on third down just 31% of the time. That's good for number 20 in the country. So we're keeping teams off schedule. We're creating third and long situations, and, and we're getting off the field. That That's really been the MO of this defense so far, despite what I think is a lot of um, you know pundits and national headlines and Twitter activity that's maybe a little misplaced talking about, oh, we're giving up big plays, uh, but hey, at least we're generating big plays. We're actually not seeing either of those. We're really just seeing this being a very sound, fundamental football team, keeping teams off schedule and then getting off the field. Looking at pro football focus grades, um, by a couple different t- uh, categories. Our tackling grade, according to Pro Football Focus, as a team is ranked at 80. Um, that grade of 80 is number 14 in the country. So we're a top 15 tackling team. I think that comes as a surprise to a lot of fans. You know, it seems like every team, every coach, every player, every fan complains about tackling. Missed tackles are aggravating. It's always an area for improvement. They always seem to come at the worst time. They always lead to big plays. But Notre Dame's actually one of the best tackling teams in the country. Um, Turning to our pass rush grade, that's 74 uh, is the grade pro football focus gives. That's number 62 in the country. So, you know, again, that's related to that havoc rate. Um, We're not generating a ton of pressure Um, really outside of Isaiah Foskey. We're not getting home to the quarterback often enough. So that's where you see that pass rush grade come out. And then pass coverage. This has been, I think, the biggest revelation for the team. The pro football focus grade is 89 in pass coverage. That's number 13 in the country. Coming into this season, our secondary was a huge question mark. We knew we had Kyle Hamilton, the All-American safety. We didn't know what we had in Cam Hart and Clarence Lewis and Tariq Bracey and DJ Brown. Those guys have worked their butts off and have absolutely stepped up and probably been our most solid unit across the offense or the defense. Um, DJ Brown and Kyle Hamilton have the two highest grades overall on our defense at 82 and 78. In last week's show, we said a grade of 80 and above is what really projects well at the NFL level. So DJ Brown is playing like an NFL caliber safety, seems like a star in the making, and has just had a huge season for our defense. Uh, then the defensive line, they've been very solid. You know, we mentioned the pass rush might be a little bit below where we'd like it to be, but but their run defense has been really, really strong, um, really a core 
um, component of, of the defensive successes, especially as you look at, you know, keeping teams off schedule on those first and tens where, where they're, you know, most likely to be run plays in the tendencies. So Isaiah Foskey, Myron Tugvaloa Amosa, Jason Adamalola, Kurt Heinish, Jacob Lacey, all grading out in that 75 to 78 range, which basically is above average, very solid starters um, for this defense. Looking ahead to the rest of the year for the defense, there's going to be some real challenges in the back half. We mentioned how the opposition for the offense um, might be getting better as we now have Cincinnati and Wisconsin in the rearview mirror. Well, that's actually the opposite for what we've got coming up for the defense. Um, the next two games, USC, they're the ninth most efficient team in SP plus on the offensive side of the ball. Ton of turmoil. Head coach got fired. Uh, but despite all of that, USC has a high-powered offense. It'll be the best we've seen. And then the week after that, UNC, um, they are the third most efficient offense in the country, according to SP+. Um, I know a lot of Irish fans will be quick to point out UNC's 3-3. Three and three. They've lost to Virginia Tech. They've lost to Florida State. They got blown out by Georgia Tech. But the predictive analytics for both USC and UNC, despite the early season struggles, really highlight these are high-powered offenses, You've got Sam Howell and Keenan Slovis, two of the best college quarterbacks in the nation. You've got Drake London um, at USC, and I forget the receiver's name from UNC, but but the two best receivers we will see all year will be in South Bend the next two weekends. So uh, regardless of these teams' records in the win-loss column, uh, you know Marcus Freeman is, is going to have his two biggest tests coming up and really top-notch uh, matchups for, for our defense to, to measure against. And then the last thing that we wanted to talk about for our midseason um, deep dive is win total projections for the year. ESPN's predicting Notre Dame to have 9.4 wins. Um, before the Virginia Tech game, that was 8.7. So the advanced metrics looking a little bit better on Notre Dame's outlook to get to 10 wins, but it's actually still roughly a 50-50 toss-up if Notre Dame's going to be a 10-win season um, this year. I'm bullish we get there. Um, you know, whenever you got a top 20 defense, you got to feel really good about that unit keeping you in every single game. Um, I think they're going to give us a really good shot against USC and UNC. And then on the flip side, we talked about how much optimism there should be that our offense is really looking like they're about to, you know, turn the corner here. Um, regardless of what's going on at the quarterback room, I think just seeing better offensive line play and then seeing an easier schedule from the offense's perspective I uh, really think you're going to see Freeman's defense continue to lock down, Reese's offense elevate, and that's going to get Notre Dame to, to 10 wins. And, and 11's not out of the question. It's still very possible this team runs the table. They should be favored in every game re remaining on the schedule. So ESPN predicting 9.4 wins for Notre Dame. Garish talk, we've got that at 10, maybe 11, and, and still feeling really good about our preseason prediction of, of a 10-2 and two Notre Dame squad. If you do not go out with the right mindset, this will be a ball game. Put them away. This is your rival. Rivalry week coming up. Brett and Mike will be in South Bend with great end zone seats for this game. Running a house with over a dozen college buddies. Going to be an awesome weekend. We're really pumped. The USC narrative deserves a moment before breaking down this team. Coming into the season, it seemed like Clay Helton finally had USC headed in the right direction. In a shortened Pac-12 COVID season... They went 5-0 in the regular season and then lost a tough seven-point game to Oregon in the Pac-12 championship. 
And coming into the year, they returned 16 starters, eight on both sides of the ball, and had a QB in Keaton Slovis, who averaged throwing for 320 yards per game last year with arguably his top target back in 6'5", Drake London. The stars were aligning. USC and Clay Helton were finally putting it all together. And then the season started. In just the second game of the year, USC gets torched by a very, very mediocre Stanford team, and Clay Helton gets fired. Keaton Slovis gets injured, and since that game, USC has gotten blown out two more times and sit at 3-3 three and three on the season, still in process of finding a new coach. We talked a lot about patience with a program, supporting a coach, consistency, and stability. Well, Clay Helton was on the hot seat since he basically took that job. And honestly, more than Clay Helton's coaching, that instability really hurt the USC program in a lot of ways. If you're a top 100 recruit, do you really want to go to a program when the AD is on the record saying that the coach is under evaluation? Probably not. And it shows. USC, perennially a top 10 recruiting program, had the number 64 class in 2020 and the number 20 class in 2019. They actually bounced back a bit last year with the top 10 class, but their 22 class currently sits at number 29, and with a new coach yet to be named, seemed like decommits could be lurking. And they don't have a single commitment for the 23 class. Program seems to be heading in the wrong direction. Now, despite that, 247 does have the overall talent composite for USC ranked at number 10 driven by a couple top 10 recruiting classes that are still in the last four years, plus some big transfers like four-star Keontae Ingram, who came in from Texas. So certainly plenty of talent. In fact, as we've mentioned before on this podcast, ND is number 12 in that composite talent ranking. So USC at number 10, it's actually a slight disadvantage for us going into this game. All right, let's turn the page and dive into this team. We mentioned they're three and three on the year. Blowout wins over San Jose State, Washington State, who's an average 4-3 and three squad, and 2-4 and four Colorado, really the basement of the already bad Pac-12. So, by all accounts, this USC team has been a failure by the typical USC standards that they have. The advanced metrics back this up. This team is the 42nd most efficient team per SP+, below average for the Power 5, and certainly below what USC expects historically. They boast the, they boast the number 16 offense, but have quite a drop-off on defense, ranking number 81. Notre Dame, on the other hand, we rank number 14 in SP Plus overall with rankings of number 39 and number 12 on offense and defense, respectively. It's worth calling out that the Irish have continually climbed up the SP Plus rankings as the year has gone on and were ranked as far back as the high 20s to start the season, an encouraging trend. On a neutral field, SP Plus has Notre Dame as about an 8-point favorite, and with home field, that ticks it up to about 11 points. ESPN's FPI gives the Irish a 77% chance of winning this game. FEI, another predictive analytics tool that measures a team's efficiency, is even more harsh and has USC as the 54th most efficient team, with the 43rd most efficient offense and the 87th most efficient defense. So, predictive analytics generally agree on this USC team. Looking beyond the advanced analytics, there is still reason for caution. Sure, they lost to Stanford by two scores. They were actually down 42-13 to in this game. But they had more yards than Stanford in that game. They actually uh, gave up a pick six. They gave up an 87-yard touchdown early in the first quarter. Otherwise, this game is a lot closer than it looks. And against Oregon State, they committed four turnovers. Against Utah, they once again had more yards. So if USC is able to limit turnovers and start turning field goals into touchdowns at a halfway decent rate, this is a very explosive team that could be better than their record suggests. Again, a high talent level does exist with this team. Quick caveat. Those are the sorts of things that happen when you're going through an early season coaching change. You lose the locker room, you lose your focus, you lose your culture. 
Just another stat. This team had has had four games with at least eight penalties, averaging 106 penalty yards in those games. Just really undisciplined. Also, both teams are coming off buys. As we've mentioned on prior shows, this is the fourth straight game for ND playing a team coming off of a bye. Just a crazy oddity that seems to happen every year for ND. Diving into the offense, we mentioned Keaton Slovis. He's a hands-down great college QB. Took over for JT Daniels when Daniels tore his ACL and never gave the job back. Daniels is now the starter at Georgia, the number one team in the country. Slovis has a pro football focus grade of 81, which is an elite level. Now, he was injured earlier in the year, and turnovers have been a problem. Five interceptions this year, but he's still a high-end college football QB. The rushing attack is led by Keontae Ingram, a transfer from Texas, who was the number 164 recruit in his class. He's on track for a 1,000-yard season. Pro football focus grades him out at 75. Very solid. And then the receivers. Drake London, as we already mentioned, is a beast. 64 catches already this year, 832 yards and five touchdowns. That's more than three times the receptions and yards of any other player on the team. Pro football focus grades him about the number five receiver in all of college football. He's likely a late first round or early second round NFL pick. And look, Cam Hart, he's been good, but not elite for Notre Dame. Clarence Lewis, Clarence Lewis the same thing. This is easily the best receiver ND will play this year. And it's going to be a really tough matchup at cornerback where the Irish have exceeded expectations, but we're still not sure if we can call the corners a strength of our defense yet. At offensive line, this was a weakness for USC in 2020. They do, however, bring back four starters. And it's been an improvement. Pro football focus grades this team as number 23 in pass blocking and number 35 in run blocking. So they are certainly more than capable of holding up for the skills positions players. So the three-headed monster of Slovis, Ingram, London. You would think this is an explosive unit, but interestingly, they only rank 119 as a team in explosiveness. So, some high-end talent, but at least through six games, it hasn't translated into the explosiveness that Trojan fans were hoping for. The offense does move the ball consistently, though. They have a 50% success rate on the season. That's good for number 14 in the country. Again, success rate is gaining 50% of the yards to go on first down, 70% on second down, and then converting on third or fourth down. An offense wants to be in the mid-40s. 50% is really, really solid. But they also give up defensive havoc on 19% of plays. So nearly one in five plays, USC gives up a negative play, tackle for a loss, deflected pass, sack, etc. So they move the ball really well, but they've been unable to generate big explosive plays with big yardage. And opposing defenses have been able to disrupt that offensive rhythm. Last thing on their offense. Some of these stats are certainly gaudy, but through six games, they played Utah, which SP Plus has as the 23rd best defense. Other than that, they played FCS San Jose State. The other four FBS opponents uh, have averaged playing the 87th defense out of 130 teams. So they haven't really been tested by high-end defenses given the Pac-12 struggles. Against Utah, look, they scored two garbage-time touchdowns in the fourth quarter, but otherwise they only scored 10 points through three quarters. Going up against Freeman's top 20 defense on the road in South Bend, I'm feeling optimistic that the Irish shut down the USC's statistically strong, maybe not potent, but strong offense. Flipping to USC's defense, oof, not really sure where to begin here. And their three losses, they are giving up 43 points per game. They're giving up a success rate of 48%, which is number 112 in the country, 75th in explosiveness allowed. And there's 73rd in line yards allowed. We mentioned line yards a lot. That's how many yards the offensive line generates and push um, on an average running play. So USC's defense doesn't really hold the line of scrimmage very well. And they only generate havoc on 50% of plays, uh, which ranks 106th in the country. So opposing offenses move the ball against USC, control the line of scrimmage against USC, generate big yardage plays against USC, 
and USC doesn't generate havoc plays to disrupt the opposing team's offense. Suffice to say, USC's defense is not very good. And it's not like they've played elite offenses. They've played five games against Power 5 opponents, all in the Pac-12. These opponents have averaged the 49th best offenses per SP+. Oregon State was the best offense they've played thus far, ranked number 22 in SP Plus efficiency ratings, and USC gave up 45 points. What's really wild is how USC has just gotten blown out long before the fourth quarter. Through three quarters, they gave up 35 to Stanford, 35 to Oregon State, and 35 to Utah. And then those teams largely packed it in and coasted a victory. So it's it's been a bad showing for USC's defense this year. For individual players, they've got two edge rushers in Drake Jackson and Tuli Tupaludo that both grade out at 85. Elite, elite grade. They've combined for six sacks on the year along with 22 other QB pressures. So they get after it. Drake Jackson in particular, he was the number one, number 56 recruit in his class. And that's obviously Andy's biggest weakness here is protecting the QB. Kelly and Reese are really going to have to provide extra protection against those two guys. Then they have two really good corners in Jaden Williams and Isaac Taylor-Stewart, both grade out at 79 and 76. In fact, seven of the top nine pro football focus grades on USC's defense are either cornerbacks or edge rushers. But as a team, they grade out number 56 in rush defense, number 102 in tackling, and number 91 in pass coverage. So they can get after the quarterback and can bottle up an opposing team's top receiving target. So it could be a tough matchup for Kevin Austin. But overall, this is just a porous USC defense and there should be a lot of opportunities for ND in both the running game and the passing game. So uh, so long as they don't let uh, USC's edge rushers dominate this game. It's an interesting point. It sure seems like Jack Cohn will be starting after his fourth quarter heroics against Virginia Tech. But this is yet another example where USC's biggest strength is generating QB pressure. And that's ND's biggest vulnerability with Cohn on the field. It'll be interesting to see if that becomes an issue. And if it does, how quickly Kelly turns to Buckner or Pine. Given the unique strengths and weaknesses of each NDQB, honestly, you could create some very clear arguments for going with different QBs each week, depending on the opposing team. And against USC, Jack Cohn certainly makes me a bit nervous. All right, so let's wrap up with score predictions. Vegas has this as a 6-7 to seven point Notre Dame win. And as we mentioned, SP Plus has this about an 11-point spread in favor of Notre Dame after adjusting for the Irish being at home. Since Brett is playing golf at Torrey Pines, he has sent it a statement uh, with his prediction that I will read now. Brett, I'm very optimistic about this game. I have now attended five straight home games against USC going back to 2011. And we've won the last four. Now I get it. Past results are poor predictors for future performance. And in those five contests, four were decided by 10 points or less. So if you exclude the 2017 drubbing when Andy blasted USC 49 to 14, these have generally been close competitive games. But Freeman's defense is officially a top 20 defense, and USC's offense is stalled out against much worse competition. And USC's defense is spiraling while Indy's offense, even with a QB carousel, really took some big strides against Virginia Tech, and I think you continue to see that at home. I might be way overly optimistic on this, but I just don't see this being a close game. I've got it 31-17 Notre Dame, and frankly, I think it might even be worse than that. The interim coaching era at USC is off to a rocky start, and I don't see that coaching, uh, I don't see that changing this week. End statement. I agree with Brett's take here. The advanced stats tell us that USC doesn't have it this year, even with their talent level. Sure, they have a bye uh, this week, but so do we. And Kelly has been a consistent winner after bye weeks. Also, as a current West Coaster, I have to say that the Pacific to Eastern time uh, jet lag is real. Have fun with that, Trojans. Uh, ND has also been trending up in the advanced stats, as I mentioned. We, We finally saw some encouraging play from our offensive line, and the defenses continue playing well while still making some strides. 
I got this as a 34-18 ND win. Honestly, I like Brett's score prediction better here, but he got to pick first, and I, I can't pick the same score. You give them hope, they'll get back into this football game. They have no reason to believe that they can beat Notre Dame. Our next segment during the bye week is going to be to catch our breath and talk about one of the most important topics in college football, that's recruiting. Um, huge, critically important to the health and success of any program is is to be uh, a top program in recruiting. Um, if you don't get the best players, it's hard to be the best team. And so we're going to look at the 2022 class. That's all but wrapped up with 21 commits at this point, maybe a couple more commits still still on the come, but by and large, that class is fully booked at this point. And then we'll look ahead to the 2023 class. It's in its early days, but already has five commits off to a good start. A uh, couple big targets on the board um, that right now are, are leaning Irish as well. well. We'll get there in a second. Before we go um, in, into those recruiting classes, I wanted to step back and talk about the process, uh, including early signing period and, and national signing day and how that shifted in, in the last couple of years. And also talk about what's uh, you know realistic expectations for Notre Dame recruiting classes. Starting with the recruiting process timeline, up until 2017, National Signing Day was held in February, still is, and players could not sign a letter of intent until National Signing Day. So that basically, um, you know, at the point of signing a letter of intent is when the player commits to attending a school, barring some very rare circumstances. In 2017, the NCAA changed those rules, and they added what we now call the early signing period. This is a three-day period in mid-December between the end of the regular season and before bowl game starts. And so since 2017, the vast majority of football recruits signed their letter of intent during the early signing period, significantly reducing this sort of impact of National Signing Day, right? If you go back to 2015, 2016, National Signing Day was a huge media day for ESPN, and it's really lost a lot of its luster as commits are now signing their letters of intent earlier in the process at different times. It's not all on one day, and it's, it's sort of spread out the process. Why does this matter? Um, it's accelerated the entire commitment process. You know, before 2017, big-time recruits, the, the, the five stars of the world, they, they would hold out for, you know, promposal-esque reveals on National Signing Day. That's still a thing, but it's diminished a lot. In fact, 75% of the top 300 recruits in the 2022 class have already committed and we're still two months away from the early signing period, four months away from National Signing Day. So more and more often, recruiting is all but finalized going into a high school player's senior year, um, You know, really a full year before they, they're even on a college campus. The other part of this acceleration is early enrollees. For students who've taken enough classes to graduate from high school a semester early, they can early enroll in college in the spring semester of what would have been their senior year of high school. This is a huge advantage for young players. They get to participate in spring practice, in strength and conditioning, and they don't have to use up any eligibility because it's just practice. It's not the actual season with games. So in 2020, Notre Dame had eight early enrollees. That included Drew Pine. Last year, Notre Dame had 14 early enrollees. That included Tyler Buckner. Big trend across college football. Notre Dame's taking advantage of this. Um, and then, you know, we talked about this earlier, but Notre Dame already has 21 commits for the class of 2022, a typical recruiting class, usually between 20 and 25 players, depending on early NFL departures, the number of fifth year seniors, transfers in and out, et cetera. So at 21 commits, this class is substantially complete at this point, um, you know, pending any decommits that pop up. But the other thing I'd highlight is we haven't had a commit since August for the 2022 class. So 
our 2022 class was effectively locked and loaded before we even started the 2021 football program. Um, that's, that's a, you know, pretty big um, win for Notre Dame to be able to go into the season knowing recruiting's out of the way. They can focus on playing football games that the coaches aren't distracted. Um, I think that's a big help for Notre Dame. The other big factor here, though, that we want to highlight the trade-off to that is that Notre Dame typically starts off with a higher recruiting ranking earlier in the process and then falls as the process goes along. That's largely because the recruits that are remaining that haven't committed yet are really those five-star recruits where NDs struggled for, for one reason or another. Um, they tend to still commit last. They tend to still commit closer to National Signing Day. So as a result, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and the like, you'll see them surge at the end of the recruiting process and NDs settle back. What do I mean by that specifically? Right now, Notre Dame's class uh, is number four. Um, we were number one over the summer. So we're already starting to see that recruiting class fall backwards. It's not because the players are worse. It's not because we've had decommits. It's just because other programs are now getting their recruiting commitments and they're moving ahead of Notre Dame. Um, you know, it really reminds me as an analogy, like mail-in voting that tended to be more blue, but those votes were counted last. So because they were counted last on election night, you'd see this blue wave of the you know Democratic vote surging. That's really similar in recruiting where the last recruits to commit, they're more likely to be the five stars going to Bama and Georgia and Ohio State and Clemson, and then those programs will surge late. One more hallmark of Kelly's tenure is a very low rate of decommits. Um, this seemingly was always the Achilles heel of Charlie Weiss and Ty Willingham. Um, so excluding players that eventually recommitted, for example, Deion Colsey and Philip Riley recommitted last year, um, and also excluding recruits outside the top 400 where they're sort of low-end three stars that often it's kind of a mutual decision for Notre Dame to guide them to another program where, th where they might play more. Um, we totaled 11 decommits in the last 11 recruiting classes, so roughly one decommit per year. And in fact, um, five of those um, came during the season following the 4-8 and eight campaign um, in, in 2016. So really excluding that year, it's only been six decommits in 10 years, about one every other year. Wildly consistent by Kelly and the staff to identify recruits they have a good fit with, get those recruits to commit, continue to hold those relationships, and then get them you know, actually in the door to, to play football. The second topic we wanted to hit on, and we touched on this before, so I'll be brief, but it's realistic expectations for Notre Dame recruiting. We touched on this in episode four when, when we did a state of the program review. Feel free to go back and check it out. Um, but number one issue for Notre Dame recruiting is that players actually have to go to class at Notre Dame. Um, look, I was in a class intro to jazz with Tommy Reese in undergrad. I can assure you that Tommy Reese's academic rigor at Notre Dame was very, very different than mine. Sorry, Tommy, but it was very different. So this is not to suggest Notre Dame doesn't take shortcuts for football players in the classroom, but they need to show up. Compare that to some other anecdotes out there. Ole Miss coach Lane Kiffin was quoted saying their starting quarterback, Matt Carell, Heisman candidate, has been in the football facility every single day before 8 a.m. and doesn't leave until after 6 p.m. Can someone tell me when Matt Carell goes to class if he's at the football facility from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m.? Now I get it. There's online classes. There's other ways to get your homework done. But really? You're trying to tell me that that kid's practicing football from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. and is going to class? Joe Burrow for LSU. He transferred to LSU. 
He never entered an academic building. Again, online classes, I get it. But he literally had never stepped foot on the academic portion of LSU's campus ever. Not once. Um, I'm just calling baloney on that. I love college football. But the NCAA is a joke. This whole student-athlete thing um, is is just a joke when, when you look across college football. And that's particularly true for SEC quarterbacks. And when you look at Notre Dame, um, our kids have to go to class. They, they might not have the same academic rigor as, as other students in Notre Dame, but but certainly for a lot of them, they do. Um, and, and in the very least, they got to show up, go to class, get their grades in. And that, that's a big differentiator um, that, that you don't have to put up with if, if you're a high-end NFL caliber player that could go play at another school in the SEC or the Big Ten or, or Big 12. Um, the other side of this is the academic standards for admissions. Uh, Pete Sampson at The Athletic, he conducted a lot of interviews with with former coaches and former members of the admissions department at, at Notre Dame. And they actually conceded that Notre Dame will bend the standards for GPA, ACT, SAT test scores. They'll bend some of the admission requirements, but what they won't bend is high school course requirements. So you still need to take Algebra 2 and Geometry, two language courses, four science courses. One needs to be physics or chemistry. This is a huge filter for high school football recruits where academics maybe wasn't a priority when they were in high school. And the result of that, Samson's interviews with former coaches suggested that Notre Dame can only target about one-third of the top 100 recruits. That's a major disadvantage when you're trying to go after those high-end four-stars and five stars where Alabama can go after all 100 of them, and we can only go after 30 or 40 of them in any given year. Really big disadvantage. Because of all that, Notre Dame fans need to be realistic. Top five recruiting classes are just tough. Um, it might happen once in a blue moon, but that that just can't be the goal when, when you think about some of the academic limitations that the Notre Dame football team is, is going up against and the coaching staff is going up against when they're trying to recruit these players. So, Mike and I talk about this a lot. Our our goal is to always be in that top 10 to top 15 range that's very doable. Top five maybe every once in a while. Um, but but really, you know, our expectation is not for us to have the number one recruiting class. Um, our, our goal is to be top 10. So with that, I'm going to turn into the 2022 recruiting class and then very briefly we'll cover 2023. We mentioned Notre Dame has 21 commitments in the 22 class. You know, and for context, Notre Dame has 85 scholarship spots, and, and it's pretty tricky this year. There, there's the extra COVID year of eligibility. There's a lot more transfers in and out. Um, frankly, it's not even clear what year guys are in. In fact, Notre Dame has started listing two class years for players on their roster. So, for example, there's 19 players right now that are listed as senior slash junior. So apparently they're both a junior and a senior. Uh, so really unclear who's all coming back for fifth-year seniors, who's going to transfer out. Who's going to go pro to, to the NFL draft early? Kyle Hamilton, Kyron Williams, for sure. Don't know who else will fit in there. Um, but most analysts think Notre Dame will have 23 to 25 spots. We've got 21 filled already, so really only expecting a couple more commitments in this class. 15 of those 21 commitments, four stars in the top 320 of 247's rankings. The headliners, Jalen Sneed. He's the 51 overall recruit in the country. He's a linebacker out of Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, interestingly, linebacker, the best position group in this recruiting class. We've got three linebacker commits. They're all in the top 125 in uh, 24-7's rankings. And then another really big headline is cornerback. This was a position we have struggled to recruit for years under Elko and, and Lee. Coach Freeman comes in with his defensive backs coach, Mike Mickens, and they make cornerback recruiting a major priority. 
and we landed two big ones, both from the West Coast, solid four stars, top 300 guys, Jaden Mickey and Ben Morrison, really the highest level caliber cornerback we've, we've had come into the program in, in several years. So already seeing that Mike Mickens higher uh, payoff in, in the recruiting front. A um, couple of things that stand out, no five stars in this class, at least not yet. And it's unlikely we should expect any more top 300 recruits to get added to this class. Um, at least as of right now, none appear imminent. We, we went through all of the top 300 recruits that have not yet committed to a school and none have crystal ball predictions. Crystal balls are where analysts at 24-7, that the big recruiting website, they'll make predictions. Their staff will make predictions on where a player is going to wind up. And they're pretty accurate. And, and they'll hold off on making those predictions till, till they think they maybe know. But for example, Tom Loy, he's the analyst that covers Notre Dame. When he makes a crystal ball prediction, he's right 79% of the time. So that's pretty darn accurate. Uh, if Tom Loy has a crystal ball that says, you know, XYZ players going to Notre Dame, you can feel pretty good that that's where that commit's headed. And right now, there's no remaining crystal ball predictions for Notre Dame on top 300 recruits in the 2022 class. There are two recruits where we're still on their board. We're in their final three or final five. Um, that's the number seven overall recruit in the country, Zach Rice, offensive tackle out of Virginia. He's actually the highest rated offensive lineman in the entire recruiting class. And then number 63 recruit, Anthony Lucas. He's a high-end four-star defensive tackle. Both Rice and Lucas have Notre Dame flagged as warm by 24-7, which means we're still in the hunt. And there's no crystal ball predictions for those guys. It's not like there's a big you know, leading school out there. So we're still very much in the hunt. Rice, he's making his announcement actually on October 21st. A lot of folks think he's going to go to UVA or UNC, but ND's still in that final listing. We'll, we'll find out in a week. Um, we talked about the blue wave analogy earlier. So our 21 recruits with no crystal balls, we're kind of where we're at. And the aggregate score for those 21 commits is 267 points. That's this you know scoring system that 24-7 uses to then determine the overall class rankings. If we didn't get another commit, that aggregate score of 267, that would have been right around number 10 in the country last year. In fact, last year, Notre Dame was number nine recruiting class with a score of 269, so sort of right at that 267. So if Notre Dame doesn't add any other recruits to this um, recruiting class, it'll be right around number 10. Now, right now, we're number four. So how do we drop from number four to number 10? Well, it's because schools like Georgia, Ohio State, LSU, Texas A&M, and Clemson are all right behind us, and they all only have 12 to 17 commits right now. So those are the schools that still have crystal ball predictions. Those are the schools that are going to go and get some of those five stars. And because of that, in the recruiting rankings, they'll leapfrog us as we go from today to signing day. Um, but... Either way, really successful recruiting um, year for, for Marcus Freeman, Tom Reese, and, and Brian Kelly to, to pull in another top 10 class, even if nothing else happens here. If, if we had Zach Rice, you know that, that could put us up towards that number five recruiting class that, that could get us pushing that top 10. So keep an eye out for Zach Rice. That's really the other big headline left in the 2022 cycle. Quickly turning to 2023, it's off to a phenomenal start. There's five commits already. That puts us in, um, and, and they're all top 300 recruits. That puts us in the top five very early on for, for recruiting classes. And the headliner is Brennan Vernon, five-star defensive lineman from Ohio, right out of Ohio State's backyard. And if his ranking holds, he's right now the number 27 recruit in the class. 
That would be the highest rated recruit we've had since Tommy Kramer in the 2016 class. Over seven years, Vernon would be the highest Notre Dame recruit coming in. Most importantly, there's a ton of promise of what's to come. The crystal balls for Notre Dame are really dynamic right now. We've got a crystal ball for the number eight overall recruit, Sonny Styles. He's uh, the brother to Lonzo Styles, a freshman wide receiver on the team. We've got a crystal ball for the number 28 overall recruit, Drake Bowen. We've got a 50-50 crystal ball for the number 48 recruit, Carnell Tate. And we've also got a crystal ball for the number uh, 76 overall recruit, Justin Rett. So those are five more guys that are all in the top 76. Now look, crystal balls aren't perfect. But if we landed all five of those recruits, um, sorry, overcounted, five five recruits, including Brennan Vernon. So that, that's the potential for five recruits in the top 76, not including anyone else still on our board, anyone else who we're making offers to, because this is very, very early in the 2023 class. But just those five players in the top 76, we haven't done that since 2011 with Aaron Lynch, Eshaq Williams, Stefan Tuitt, Ben Koyak, and Matt Haggerty one of our best recruiting classes under Kelly and and the last time where we've had five recruits in the top 76. So very, very special potential for this class of 2023. Um, if you're tracking this, again, Sonny Styles, Jarek Bowen, Carnell Tate, Justin Rett, those are the big headliners that, that we're really hoping Kelly pulls in. Um, early days, but if we land those guys and keep building on this class, it, it could really be one of the best Notre Dame recruiting classes in, in frankly, over a decade. A lot of exciting stuff on the recruiting front. Another testament to just where Kelly has this program. It's healthy. It's stable. It's in a really good place, and and that shows in the recruiting. Remember, drivers get too loose if they drive half tight. Okay, we are absolutely pumped for this USC game. Core group of college friends. There's eight of us, Du Bois. Six of us will be back together this weekend. Love you, Mike and Henry. Unfortunately, they won't be with us. I assume they're saving lives this weekend. Both of them are doctors, but I actually don't know. For all I know, they could be in Vegas at the roulette table. Um, But anyway, this is the biggest reunion we've had probably since Brett's wedding. Not sure if I'm missing a trip since then, but we have had a pandemic in the way. So needless to say, really excited about this. We've got a house rented. Drew, Jack, Jim, Brandon. Can't wait to get after it with you guys. And for our closest friends... We wanted to honor you guys by dedicating this Four Horsemen to you, a review of our favorite bars on ND Home Game Weekends. Caveat, this is just for game weekends. So not our favorite college bar, not our favorite Wednesday night watering hole, although there is some overlap, but those bars that are the perfect combination of close to campus, mix of students and alum, and something that just embodies that game weekend experience. All right, let's start with the one bar we refuse to acknowledge even exists. It's a shame that Brett's not here to record this segment with me because just the, the mention of this bar gets his, his blood boiling. New Finneys did not make the cut. If you're not run by a biker gang, then you're not Finneys. Sorry to all the Gen Z TikToking listeners out there, but New Finneys is not for us. I will say maybe one day I'll try it out, and when that day comes, we can, we can revisit that. Okay, so moving on to the Four Horsemen. First pick, the backer. If you can get into the backer on a game weekend, there might be no better place on earth. Good food that no one knows about. Incredible DJ. All I want for Christmas has never sounded better. Just banger after banger at this bar. One minute you're listening to Diana Ross, the next uh, Sweet Caroline. Their playlist runs across all eras and, and genres. Just perfect balance. And of course, this place is decked out with historic ND memorabilia. 
prime visible location right by campus. And fun fact for our listeners, uh, Brett actually insisted that I insert this in the script, the location of Brett's greatest wingman moment of all time. But that's not a story fit for this podcast, so we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Number two, CJ's. Great Friday night spot and very popular with our friends in college. Back in those days, it was always a race to see if Tom Knight, a rotational player on the basketball team, uh, if he could shower after the basketball games and then beat us to CJ's. Unfortunately, I have to say we lost about half the time. Honestly, Tom burned us a few times. He was so far ahead that by the time we got there, he already had a pitcher in hand. Also of note, this was a prime location to run into Manti during his prime ND years. Number three, Corby's. This one, definitely not one of our friend's favorite college bars, or mine for that matter. Brett included this in our notes, so I am obliged to include. Brett, you're welcome uh, that I did not delete this. Brett does admit it is a bit overrated, though, although it is one of Guyrish wife's and favorite bars. But this place turns up on game weekends. Alumni love it. A lot of history. Heck, it's named after a priest. And then number four, last but certainly not least, Finney's. The land of $1 beers on Wednesdays. Robo's dance floor. Rest in peace, Robo. You left us too soon, but never forgotten. An absolute legend in South Bend. Finney's is the embodiment of the ND student bar scene. And it's the place for alumni to test if they still got their youth. So far, we still got it. We'll find out if we uh, do this year when we go back uh, this coming weekend. Um, By far the most frequented college uh, bar in South Bend, and it's been a favorite to return on game weekends as a pilgrimage uh, to our better days. Now, I'm going to give some honorable mentions here uh, that we should mention. Uh, Tap House on the Edge, formerly Between the Buns. Great morning spots for their Smurf drink, or as we call out in La La Land and AMF, highly recommend. Mulligans, sadly, recently closed. But scene of the infamous dollar fireball shot night, that went about as well as you would imagine. Others are Brothers and O'Rourke's, very convenient. Just love me some Brothers cheese curds. Fiddler's Hearth, for our listeners looking to class it up a little bit. And then on campus, we uh, we got Legends. And then another is Rourke's for, uh, for more of the old alumni vibe. To round out this segment, uh, Brett was in charge of the Airbnb for USC. Most people want a house close to campus for an easy walk. Nope. Not Brett. He's he's looking to looking to get us right into shape. He's sitting there mapping out what the house is uh, most equidistant to Corby's, CJ's, Finney's, and the backer. So if you're in South Bend for the USC game and you hear a guy repeatedly yelling Irish or yelling at the officials, that's Brett. Say hello. Brett will buy you a drink and we'll be pumped for our first ever fan meet and greet. All right, that's a wrap. Irish, be Trojans.